All right, you, oop, oop, I'm loud. All right, you guys, sorry about that. Let's, uh, we'll get ready to move into the next part of the service here. I was really gonna, I was really gonna come up and come over and play this, but uh, I figure Scott played it and one person cried. I think if I played it, the rest of you would start crying. So we'll just uh, we'll just leave it. We'll just leave that alone. You can imagine what I would sound like. Am I too loud? I feel loud to me. I don't know if I am or not, but I'll let you guys figure that out. Okay, I'll just ignore it and. You guys will figure it out. Uh, good morning. I also want to say good morning, especially if you're here for the first time, some of you, and if you're back maybe after being here last week for Easter. Uh, it was a great service last week, so so glad to be able to welcome you again this morning. My name's Ralph Howe, and I'll be uh, giving the message today. And we're going to, last week we looked at the resurrection, uh, the story of Christ rising from the dead, the empty tomb, and we'll we'll look at that again today as part of the message as well as some of the events that surround it. Uh, but we will do that in a bit of a different way. Uh, so as we get started, let me, let me uh, ask you this question. Um, are you a creature of habit? We're, we're all pretty much creatures of habit. I mean, if you talk to psychologists, they would say that the human way of living life is we, over some period of time, we find a routine that works, that's comfortable and safe, and we stay in that routine, right? And it takes something very dramatic to, to, to alter the routine that we've become comfortable with. We are creatures of habit. Um, and I'm just going to ignore, this is nothing deadly or toxic, right? Well, it's, it's feathers from a bird. I, we'll just assume that's not a problem. Uh, I think that when Paul was preaching and he came up with obstacles, I don't think this is what he had. I think he had worse, worse stuff than this. Very interesting. Um, what have I said so far? I said... Ralph Howe, right? Ralph Howe, nice to meet you. Yeah, it takes traumatic events to change you, right? Um, so being a creature of habit, in a lot of ways, it's good. It is good. Uh, you know, there's safety in that. Obviously, we there are things in our routines that are good, you know, whether it's some type of discipline or as simple as brushing teeth, whatever. Um, but then there are all, there's also a negative side to being a creature of habit. And I've lived long enough to realize that I want to resist the change that God is trying to do in my life. Um, and if we don't allow him to alter and change some ways that we think and some ways that we do life, we'll get stuck in a place that he doesn't want us to be. I remember one of my dramatic moments early in my life. I was a senior in high school, and uh, I was always a, a decent student. I was, a, you know, kind of the, the middle of the pack and just a little bit above it. I was a decent student. So I never failed classes. I'd get an occasional C, but mostly A's and B's in the American style of grading, that was fine. But my senior year of high school, um, I got what, what we call in America senioritis. And um, I started skipping the classes that I didn't like. I just felt like, hey, I'm, I'm almost 18 now. I can do what I want with my life. And I didn't like pre-calculus. And my teacher's name in my pre-calculus class, my math class, was Mr. Pressure. And uh, it just seems so appropriate, doesn't it? Mr. Pressure, right? And, um, but I started skipping his class and I would go hit golf balls on the football field in the back of my high school during my class. And what's, what's kind of, you know, when you're young, you're not that smart. The, the, the classroom was on the second floor and the window looked out over the football field. <clears throat> so my friends would be looking like, what's he hitting? The wedge? No, he's hitting an eight iron. You know, they'd be watching. 
but one of my friends, actually my golf coach, was also in the math department at the high school. And with about a month before graduating high school, uh, he pulled me aside with Mr. Pressure, and they said, Ralph, you're failing this class, and if you fail this class, you will not graduate high school. That was like this amazing, dramatic knock in the head. I was never somebody that was anywhere near failing a course, or, but I wasn't going to graduate high school if I didn't dramatically change what I was doing. My mom got me a tutor, and I started doing a tutor a couple days a week, and, and I don't think I actually passed the class, but Mr. Pressure, Mr. Pressure gave me a D minus, and I passed and was able to go to college. So that was a dramatic moment for me. Um, some of you, if, if you've done this, if you've ever purchased a home, some people, you remember the first time you purchased a home and you signed the paper for the mortgage and you look at the numbers on that thing and you go, I'm going to pay how much, right? For how long? Am I got 30 years? I'm going to pay this much, you know? It's a pretty dramatic moment for a young person, maybe typically maybe young and married and you, and you sign that and you realize I have to make some dramatic changes in the way that I'm doing my life. And then the other example that's common for me and probably for a lot of you sitting here, if you've ever had a child, um, that's a bit of a dramatic life changer, right? Dad, you remember the first drive home from the hospital? You're driving under the speed limit. You know, the light turns yellow and you slow down and stop, you know, and you know, you're looking back and you can't imagine why people are racing around you. And um, we have four kids. And when my oldest child was an infant, maybe she was maybe five months old at this time, it was a Sunday. I, my wife and I with my daughter were at church. It was after church. I was talking to some friends. This was going to be the first night that my wife got to leave after church. She was going to go out with friends and have dinner with friends. And I was going to be the first night I was going to be, you know, dad home with baby alone. And one of my friends in the hallway of the church said, hey, Ralph, we're going to do this and that tonight. Do you want to come? And I said, hey, you know, I'd love to, but I can't come tonight. I've got to babysit. You got to babysit, right? It's a baby. I'm going to sit there. I got to babysit, right? Well, my wife's friends were there and one of them heard me say that she called me aside after she said Ralph when it's your child it's not babysitting it's called parenting okay <laughs> so so that was a dramatic moment that transformed the way I was living my life right right so so those are you know sil silly examples but God's in the business of transforming us and he knows that we're creatures of habit. One of the most profound events that happens in the Bible is the change, the dramatic transformation that takes place in the lives of the disciples who are following Jesus. As you go through the Gospels, the, the, the accounts of Jesus, and then into the book of Acts where these men go on to lead the church, it's a dramatic life change that happens in them. So why did that happen? Well, there's at least three things that I can see. And one of them is the resurrection of Jesus. We looked at that last week. And, uh, of course, to see someone raised for the dead is a dramatic moment. But I do want to say this about the disciples. Um, please understand this. The teaching of Jesus did not transform the disciples. Okay? The teaching of Jesus attracted them to him. It challenged them. It encouraged them. But his teaching by itself did not transform them. It was his resurrection initially spurred this life-changing transformation, followed by a short time later in the book of Acts, uh, God gave the Holy Spirit in a whole new way, and the Holy Spirit came to live inside all those who would trust Christ. And those two things together really caused the transformation in those guys. But then there's a third part, and the third part is what we're going to look at today, um, and that is the Word of God. And I would use the phrase the illuminated 
Word of God. And all that means is the, the Word of God explained and expounded on and brought to light in a way that you can't deny the power of it. And it changes the way that you live life. So what we're going to do now, if I can do my job in the next few minutes, you will never be able to read the New Testament story of Jesus and see it the same way ever again. If I do my job. So I'm going to do my job. Um, We're going to look at the New Testament in light of a reality from the Old Testament that existed Uh, for the nation of Israel. And uh, the nation of Israel had seven festivals that they would celebrate every year that were given by God. And uh, what I'm going to do is just start off by reading a couple of verses from the New Testament, and then I'm just going to start talking, and we'll see where we go here. Um, In John chapter 13, verse 1, Jesus is close, very close to the crucifixion at this point. Um, And here's, here's what the scripture says. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then that story, if you know it, he goes on to wash their feet just before he's getting ready to be crucified. So that verse starts now before the feast of Passover. Let's go down to Luke 22. This is the same time period, but a different group of people are also having a conversation. And here's how it starts. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him, Jesus, to death, for they feared the people. Now, here's here's a teaching point I want to make. Whenever the Bible hands us a context that has a basis in the Old Testament, we have to stop and take notice. There's a major reason why God would do that. So, John 13, now before the Feast of Passover, that's a context. And we should, right away, we should go, well, what does that mean? What does that have to do with anything? And again, in Luke, he does the same thing, the same thing. The Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Feast of Passover. Um, God did something, this is no surprise, God did something absolutely brilliant. God embedded an analogy into the culture and the life of the nation of Israel so that he could use that analogy when Jesus came to validate that Jesus was the Messiah. Um, any, Any teacher... Any teacher that's good is always looking for a way to connect a new truth with a common experience that a person is having. Um, I'm in Beijing teaching golf, and uh, I spent all day trying to help people better understand how to play golf. I had a student yesterday who's Chinese. I'm teaching through the interpreter, which makes it even more interesting and fun. Um, But I was trying to get a concept across about the golf swing. Um, And in the golf swing, I'm going to do this right-handed even though I'm lefty. I was trying to help him understand his right arm better. And he had a right arm that his hand would be up here and his arm would go out and down to the ground, like really vertically down. And so I said, hey, listen, you know, just just imagine baseball, American baseball. And I'm like, you know how the shortstop will pick up the ball and he'll throw it, but he'll throw it sidearm, you know, this way. And the guy's looking at me and the translator says it and the guy's looking at me. I'm like, have you ever played baseball? He's like, I've never played baseball. It's like, have you ever seen baseball? I was like, well, you've seen baseball. He says, no, I've never seen baseball. And this is about the part where I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to lose my job. This is the end of it right here, baby, you know. But so then I'm thinking, how do I connect? I want his arm to move sideways along the ground, not vertically down at the ground. So then I asked him if he's ever skipped a rock before. Have you ever skipped a rock like a flat rock across the lake, right? So I said, listen, imagine you. And he said, yeah, I've done that. So imagine you have one of those rocks 
You're going to skip it across the lake. He got it right away. We had a great lesson. went really well. But what my job as a teacher is, is to take a new concept for the student and connect it to something that's familiar with them so that they can more easily digest it. Well, this is what God has done with the feasts of Israel. So we're not going to do a detailed look at the feasts. It's not possible to do a detailed one. But I'm going to give you just enough information as I talk about this uh, to have it connect, and you'll see why I'm sharing it. And then, you know, it'll be your job to enjoy studying it more uh, as we go along. So how many feasts are there in Israel? There were seven feasts every year. They're also called festivals. Um, And we've got them listed. I think we're going to have them listed here. Feast of Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of First Fruits. Those actually all took place together. Those three different feasts happened in the same week. And what would happen was three times a year, all the males and then uh, the women and children would come too, but the males were required wherever they were in Israel to travel back to Jerusalem to take part in these feasts. And so there were seven feasts. Two of the feasts uh, or six of the feasts were lumped into two groups. So you had three feasts that were together in a week, and then you had one feast, and then you had three more at the end of their, their year. And so those three times a year, all these people would come back to Jerusalem. The feasts were not somber occasions. They were celebrations. They were joyful. And we need to understand that. They were divine appointments where God wanted to meet with his people. And each feast had a different kind of action steps that were prescribed and a different purpose. But the purpose behind the feasts from the historical perspective was to remember and acknowledge God's faithfulness to the nation of Israel. Um, so let me see if I'm just don't want to see if I'm skipping anything here. Um, so three times a year, the, the, the population of Jerusalem would explode. Historians say that there were about 50,000 people that lived in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. And so we'll just assume that's pretty fairly accurate. Um, one historian said that as many as 3 million people would come to Jerusalem during the feast. Now, most writers say that's very exaggerated, but the number that seems to be pretty accurate is that Jerusalem would swell from 50,000 people to about 250,000 people three times a year for the celebration. Big crowd, right? Imagine Beijing times five, three times a year, right? How would the traffic be on there, right? There'd be some driving restrictions and all that stuff. Might even be walking restrictions, I don't know. Jerusalem would explode three times a year, and this happened every year for 1,400 years. have to understand, get this, it was so embedded into the culture, the families, from the time you were an infant to the time you went to the grave as, as a Jewish person, you knew the festivals. You know when they were, you knew why they were, you knew what you did, you knew when you had to travel, and it was just embedded into the culture of their life. You've got to get that and see that. Um, now, the entire New Testament story is pinned to the feasts. This is amazing. If you just kind of took the timeline and just had the Feast of Passover and, you know, all the way across, what you find is the New Testament writers, whenever they're, most times when they're introducing a new section of, of their book, they're saying this happened at the Feast of this or that or this or that. You have to see this and understand that the writers were Jewish and everything they processed, they processed from a calendar understanding the feasts. Now, just give me another minute to set this up, and then it's it's just amazing. Let me read a few verses just to give you the flavor of that. I'm going to read six or seven verses from the Gospels. This is in Luke chapter 2, 41. 
when Jesus was younger, it says this. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went according to the custom. Reference to the Passover on that particular year. Now, we'll go to John chapter 22, 23. Different time period completely, many, many years later. Now, when he, Jesus, was at, in Jerusalem at the Feast of Passover, many believed in his name because they saw the signs he was doing. Go to another different time period, John chapter 5, verse 1. Some things are described, and it says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. See this. If you're looking for it, you see the feasts and the festivals everywhere. John chapter 7, verse 2. Now, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. And John seven fourteen, referring to the same feast, it says, About the middle of the festival, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. And then John chapter 7, 37, same festival, it says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We're going to come back to see that they said, like, in the middle of the feast, Jesus did this. At the end of the feast, Jesus did this. It's all connected to the history of the feast, and I'm going to explain it in a minute. Just a couple more, because I'm only giving you a sample. This isn't all of them. Uh, John chapter 10, 22. At the time of the Feast of Dedication, at, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple. Just the everyday life. They thought about the feasts and the festivals all the time. John chapter 12, 12. Last one I'll read, not the one in, last one in the book. Uh, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches and palm trees and went out to meet him. So I did all that just to highlight the fact that God has embedded an illustration in the feasts of Israel so that when Jesus came, they would validate him as the Messiah. So what does that mean? Real brief, a lot of information. This is a fire hose today, but I love this kind of stuff. The Feast of Passover. A lot of you are familiar with it, and some of you I know are not familiar with it. The Feast of Passover was done every year for 1,400 years up to the time of Jesus and still continues today um, to commemorate the time when the nation of Israel was in slavery in Egypt. And God sent Moses as a deliverer, and Moses, through God's power, set the people free from their slavery. Israel was God's people, and they were living far below the standard that God had called them to. And God wanted them to have a vibrant life of freedom and that the way that they lived their life would reflect God's work in them and it would draw other nations to the one true God. So they're in slavery, and the way God did it, if you don't know the story, it's in Exodus chapter 12, but at the culmination of, of this story and some things going on, God told Israel, listen, I'm about to set you free from Egypt, but in order for you to be safe from my judgment that's coming on Egypt, you have to sacrifice a lamb, the Passover lamb. And when you do that and you apply the blood the right way, you will be passed over from my judgment. And not only that, but you will be set free to begin a new life. So the first feast that the Jewish people celebrate every year is the feast of Passover. They take a lamb and what they're told to do, God tells them to do, is on the 14th day of the month. And it, and it would be the first full moon after the spring equinox. And again, way too much information. But they would take the lamb on the 10th day of the month and they would set it aside until the 14th day of the month. God told them specifically to do this. 
And on the 14th day of the month, they would take the lamb out at twilight and they would sacrifice it. And then they would be able to apply the blood of the lamb so that God's judgment would pass over them. The second feast that actually happened the, the next day, it was, you know, they had a different calendar. They did days from night to morning, not like we do morning to night. So really, just right after the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread happened. Feast of Unleavened Bread is so significant, so important. They were told by God that for seven days, they were to eat no bread made with leaven or yeast. Um, I'm not a baker, but I know enough to know that when you put yeast or leaven into bread, it makes it rise, right? Leaven is, it kind of ferments, it, it permeates the entire piece of dough and it makes the whole thing rise, right? Um, and you read through it and God says, listen, there's to be no yeast. Okay, we get it. And he's like, no, you don't get it. You can't even have any on your utensils. You have to like boil and wash your utensils. There can't be any left over. And the people are like, okay. And the guy's like, no, no, you don't get it. There can't be any yeast in your house. There can be no yeast within the borders of your property for seven days. And if I find yeast anywhere in your possession among you, you will be cut off from your people. And I'm just thinking, man, God really hates yeast. <laughs> God's, he's got like a yeast phobia. What's the matter with this guy, you know? Well, listen, the, the Bible sheds light on that. The Bible tells us that yeast is a symbol of sin to God. Yeast is a symbol of sin because just a little bit that gets into our heart and our life ends up expanding and controlling and changing everything about who we are. And God doesn't want that. And this Feast of Unleavened Bread was a symbol of the fact that God wanted us to live. When He set His people free by the blood of the Lamb, and you figured out who the Lamb is, right? The Feast of Passover, to back up there for a second. Jesus entered Jerusalem before the Passover on the 10th day of the month. Jesus was crucified on the 14th day of the month. While Jesus was being crucified and hung on a cross, the Jewish people were going through their tradition of sacrificing the lamb. Stunning. Stunning. God embedded it so that when the time came and Jesus came, it would all make sense in front of them. Passover, Jesus is the lamb. The leaven was to be put out of the camp. The leaven was the picture of sin and evil. And when the lamb was slaughtered and the leaven was taken out, Jesus became the leaven for us. Jesus became the sin that was taken out of our midst and done away with. Incredible. Incredible what God did through these feasts. Not only was Jesus the leaven, but Jesus also then, in another way of looking at it, was the unleavened bread. Because the unleavened bread was made without sin. It was without sin. And we are to partake and eat of the Passover lamb and the unleavened bread, which is a picture of us feasting on the life of Christ. It's rich and deep, isn't it? It's just getting started. That's only two feasts. Feast of unleavened bread. Three days after... They were to cut down. Now, when they literally happened in Egypt, they were leaving Egypt and going to the promised land. But God told them that night, when you leave Egypt, I'm going to bring you to the promised land. Once you get there, we're going to institute another feast, the Feast of First Fruits, because they would plant crops, right? They had to eat, they would plant, and they would pray for rain and hope it would grow so they could have an abundant crop. Well, the third feast is called the Feast of First Fruits. And on the third day after... 
they were to go out into the field and cut down one sheaf, one sheaf that would have grain. And they were to cut it down and bring it to the priest. And the priest was to take it and stand and wave it before God. And he would wave it before God. And when he did that, the Bible says that God would find their sacrifice acceptable. He would accept that sheaf and then they could harvest the crop. What happened three days after Jesus was crucified? He rose. The sheep is a picture of Jesus going before the Father on our behalf, saying, because of me, they can now be accepted. And the harvest and the crop that comes after is a picture of the souls that are being won through the preaching of the gospel. The entire gospel story is in the feast. And I'm not giving you the details. I'm giving you the outline. Stunning. Stunning. In Leviticus chapter 23, and by the way, you can read Exodus 12, you can read Leviticus 23, that'll give you at least some of this stuff. Leviticus chapter 23, 11, referring to the Feast of First Fruits, says this. Um, he, the priest, shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, he shall wave it. So he waves the sheep on the day after the Sabbath. The Sabbath was Saturday. We celebrate church on the first day of the week, Sunday, the day after the Sabbath, because Jesus rose from the grave. On the day that Jesus is rising from the grave, they're out there waving the sheep. It's unmistakable. It's unmissable. It's so thorough. Amazing. So we go there, and I actually don't have this verse, but I'm going to go to it. Um, the next feast now, so those three feasts happened together. Um, and then there was 50 days from the time that the sheaf was waved to the next feast. And God said specifically that many days. And then you celebrate the next feast, the Feast of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, verse 1, we're just about to see the birth of the New Testament church. In Acts chapter 2, and here's the verse, chapter 2, verse 1. The Bible's still doing it. Here it is. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. When the day of Pentecost, there's a context. What's the context of Pentecost? Well, Pentecost was when um, the 50 days after, and they were to further celebrate and harvest the crop that had come in. And on Pentecost in the New Testament, the church was born. And the Bible says Peter preached a sermon when the Holy Spirit fell. The Holy Spirit fell on Pentecost. And 3,000 people got saved. That's the crop. It's a representative of the crop that's coming through the preaching of the gospel. It's amazing. Um, in the historical account, when Israel leaves Egypt, God sets them three, free through the Passover lamb and they travel. Historians say, and you can read through the Bible again, you can really do this study. 50 days later, they arrived on Mount Sinai when God gave Moses the law. The Jewish people call the, the, the festival of Pentecost something different. They call it Matin Torah. Matin Torah because they believe that's the time when Moses received the law from God on Mount Sinai. Fifty days later. Look at this. Fifty days after the Passover lamb is slaughtered, God starts the church in the Old Testament by giving the law to Moses. Fifty days later, after the, the sacrifice of the lamb in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes and starts the New Testament church. Do you see it? It's amazing. It's amazing to me. Um, back in the Old Testament, God was showing himself as holy. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Um, God was showing himself as holy and powerful and righteous and that man was sinful. And no one was allowed to come to the mountain when Moses was preaching or when Moses went to get the the Ten Commandments. Some people, some things happened, and God, 3,000 people died the day that the law came. New Testament church starts, 3,000 people get saved. It's amazing to me. It's amazing to me, the beauty of the story. It's unmissable, unmistakable. So what I want to do is just spend a minute. I'm going to read some other New Testament verses uh, that I haven't read yet. And I want you to listen to the language of the New Testament. I want you to listen to the story of Jesus through the language of the feast. Okay? Let me just read and I'll comment on some. I won't comment on others. Colossians chapter 2, 16 and 17 says this. So let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a feast day because they are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is of Christ. The feasts were always meant to be a shadow. Jesus is the fulfillment. 1 Corinthians 5 says this. Paul's writing to the church. He says, your boasting is not good. Your bragging is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Listen to the story of Jesus through the language of the feast. 1 Corinthians 15, but now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and afterwards those who are in Christ at his coming. How'd they miss it? How did one person miss it? When Jesus began his public ministry, John the Baptist announced him to the nation of Israel with these words. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was Jesus' formal introduction in the public ministry. Behold the Passover Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. It's amazing. It's stunning. I didn't tell you about the last three feasts because it's just too much It's too much to kind of try to summarize. I'm just going to finish with this and we're going to have some more worship. Um, I already read John chapter 7. Let me do it again. Let me give you the context. In John chapter 7, they are celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was the last feast of the year of the, of the Jewish calendar. And it was done to celebrate the fact that while Israel was, Israel was wandering through the wilderness, God always provided for them. He always took care of them. And during the Feast of Tabernacles, two of the main things that the Jewish nation would do to remember God's faithfulness to them during the Feast of Tabernacles is that they would take a basin and they would dip it into the Pool of Siloam, which was a body of water in, in Jerusalem, and they would take it to the temple. 
and they would pour the, ba the water into a silver basin so that the people would remember that while they wandered in the wilderness, God caused water to come out of a rock so that they could have water to drink. That's the context in John chapter 7, verse 37. That's what's happening when Jesus says, on the, la on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Do you see, Jesus, he's not separated from the culture. And he's not separated from the feast. He's embedded in it. They're pouring the water, symbolizing God's faithfulness. And Jesus is saying, I am the water. And the Bible says he cried out. I'd like to take my microphone off and cry out. Jesus wasn't reading it like I'm sitting here reading it. He was crying out with a passion saying, I'm the water. I'm the lamb. Will you come to me? That's what Jesus was doing. The second thing that they would do, major thing that they would do during this festival of tabernacles is they would light candles or lamps or lanterns at different time in their history. And they would walk with them and they would follow them to remind them that the Holy Spirit was fire by night and that he would lead the people and they would follow behind the Holy Spirit. They also did that because they believed and knew that, that the Messiah, when he did come, would be a light to the Gentiles. The Bible tells us that the next morning, while the feast is going on and it's just finished up, and the next morning Jesus goes back to the temple. And Jesus says this, I'm the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but have the light of life. Well, I just gave you guys an outline, and I was really worried I was going to come up here and like be up here for an hour and a half, and you guys were going to be falling asleep and all that kind of stuff. But it's just an outline. But I encourage you to, I encourage you to do a couple of things. One, feast on the word. Remember, the disciples were changed because of the resurrection. They saw it, right? Bible says we're blessed because we believe it, even though we didn't see it. They were changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Is the power of the Holy Spirit abiding in you? Is your life changing because the Spirit's at work in you? I ask myself the same question. Then number three, is the illuminated Word of God having its effect in you? Are you drawing closer to Jesus as your Messiah? Are you more empowered as His follower? Are you more peaceful because of the truth of who He is?